always good. So week three of our series, Behind the Text, and I love what he says there. He said two really important things I kind of want to draw your attention to. The first is, the more you know, the better decisions you're going to make, right? We all agree with that. That's like NBC's tagline right now, the more you know, right? And they're, they're, they're helping us know more so we can make better decisions. Um, but then he says this, you, you don't know what you don't know. And, and I love that phrase because it just reminded me as I, I prepared this message, um, that, that sentiment alone is probably, in my mind, the reason why we have so much trouble with authority, right? If anybody oh, other than myself tells me what to do, man, I, there's a little bit of pushback because I don't know what I don't know, and somebody else, I don't know that they don't know or that they do know what they think they know, and dads are the worst. Preachers, we are, we're, all, we're all the worst. Um, from the very beginning, this has been the issue, and I'm not talking about Adam and Eve. I'm talking about... Um, you as a child and you as a parent, right? So, so some of you, what I'm about to share with you, this, this is old hat, old news. Some of you, you're currently discovering this, Sarah Muhammad and others. And some of you, you have a rude awakening in your future, right? You're thinking about having kids. Here, here's the deal. Um, your authority as a parent is not nearly as absolute or as timeless as you think or as you thought, um, I was once all-powerful. Go ahead and hit that next slide there. I was once um, all-powerful, all-knowing, and Diane was all-seeing because she had eyes in the back of her head, apparently. It was like we were the Wizard of Oz, like if the wizard had a wife. Well, then somebody pulled back the curtain, <laughs> and everything went sideways uh, from there. Growing up, it was like one rude awakening after another. The first one is I found out that my mom and dad didn't have authority over the other kids on the block. It's like... Mom, Dad, go, go handle it. It's like, no, Jerry, you go handle it. I don't have authority over those kids. You don't? Let alone the fact that th this was a shocker, too, that my dad couldn't beat up the other dads, right? His, his um, value dropped quite a few notches as a young boy. Like, I, I, I never saw him fight, but I just kind of concluded that big giant dude across the street, he could lick my dad. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and by the age 15, maybe 13, maybe 14, I figured out that dad didn't know everything. At that point, I didn't think he knew anything. And, and on top of all that, I found out that mom and dad don't have eyes behind their heads. They don't know what I'm up to. <laughs> Mind blown like young teenage boy, right? And, and the same thing, this functional authority, right? The authority that is only there... Right, if you're 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 helping out, and if you're being right, you're there in that functional role. Um, as a husband, I I kind of thought I had authority over the castle, and apparently I I'm not sure I have authority over the yard anymore. I'll, I'll talk to my wife afterwards. Um, as a pastor, we were once trusted, like at the top, and now we're like two spots higher than a lawyer. Sorry if you're a lawyer. <laughs> right. <laughs> nice to meet you down here at the bottom. Now here's the deal: I didn't lose my authority. Like I'm still dad. I didn't do something so horrendous that they no longer want to accept me as, as their dad, right? So, so I still have a authority, but my authority is, it's evolved, it's changed. Uh, I don't know. It didn't become less. It just had to change in changing circumstances, right? It had to be expressed differently depending on my function, either as a dad, a husband, a pastor, you know, whatever, um, but also as that function changes over time, right? My authority as a dad changed as my girls grew up. It, it just changed. It, it, it didn't get less. It just, it just changed. 
bringing Pastor Dan on and, and any staff, right? My, my authority changes. It, it shifts. It doesn't really get less. It just it becomes different. Seems the Bible has that same authority issue that we parents have, right? The Bible's functional authority, somewhat like a parent's functional authority or kind of day-to-day in the, in, in the trenches kind of authority, is directly related to its ability to answer our toughest questions and provide peace in our most difficult times. And again, the authority changes over time. It doesn't become less. It just, just becomes different. The fact is, in difficult times, and, and we are in those times, I really don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about how difficult our times are. Um, we see it today as we've seen it throughout history, right? People turn to God because they instinctively know that God's got the answers, right? He, he must know. And so we instinctively, we, we turn to God. Um, and in difficult times, sometimes we, we turn to God and sometimes we challenge and we question God. Sometimes we blame God. We, sometimes we turn away from God. We run from God because we blame him. But here's the thing. All the information, more often than not, was derived from the Bible. People gathered their information from the Bible, but we're not in that time anymore. We're no longer in, in Oz, right? Many folks no longer turn to the Bible because it makes no sense. I, I Just a wild guess here. They, they probably stopped attending church because... The church wasn't using God's word to answer their most pressing questions, and it didn't give them, therefore, peace. And so they just stopped attending. We use the word relevant, right? Someone didn't make the word relevant to me, and right? why be there every Sunday morning when it does not apply to my life? Nobody has helped me see how it applies to my life, because it does. It, it does. Boy, does it ever. Instead, now they turn to uh, the God they remember from their childhood. Or worse, I think, is the God reported in the media, like in sound bites. Right? That's the information that people have about God today. And you hear it as they talk. You're like, wow, where did you get? I heard that on Rush Limbaugh, or I heard that on uh, Fox News, or I heard that on uh, NBC, I, you know, all the different channels. I, wait, wait a minute, that's not biblical. Right? And you kind of, like, wait. Part of the problem, I think, um, is the church and pastors and Christians, we have overemphasized, we've overvalued the work of the Spirit in the original composition of the texts themselves, right? Everything that we think about in the Spirit of God and, and, and inspiring, we kind of Take the spirit and put him 2,000 years back and kind of leave him there, right? That, that's his job is, is, is when the, 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 the original documents were written, he had to be there and inspiring the writers, and then he kind of checks out. We, we've kind of got that crazy, crazy idea, or at least we've led people to believe that this is the case. But here's the reality. The, holy, the Bible is holy scripture, meaning that this book filled with pages and written on words and, and 66 different some odd books and an index and, and, and all this physical stuff becomes holy scripture, right? It speaks to my life. It speaks of God's will in my life. It, it speaks life into my life, right? The Bible, the physical Bible becomes holy scripture, not only because it was God inspired in its original composition. That, and that's something I'm simply calling conceptual authority, this is just simply some writer who chose this word. Let me, let me explain how he's using this word. Conceptual authority is that voice or that argument that tells me that this Bible has authority before I even open it. Because it's God's word. It was God-breathed. 
So I don't even need to open it, and I've already decided I'll believe anything, hook, line, and sinker, because I believe that this was inspired by God. That's conceptual authority. I haven't even opened it up yet, but I give it authority because I've been told that God inspired it. Conceptual authority. That's like mom and dad, right? Why? Because I told you so. That's conceptual authority, right? It's not functional authority. It's not answering the question of the moment. It's just saying, just do what I say, right? Because I said so. <laughs> we do that with scripture. Affirming the conceptual authority of scripture alone, we're going to look at functional authority today. Affirming the conceptual authority of loner, the inerrancy of Scripture and its original documents is, is kind of the buzzword right now, um, is helpful only, only if those original documents shut off all wrong interpretations and the, the correct interpretation is always clearly seen, right? No disagreement on any interpretation of text, and that's not our case. You, you all realize that, right? I doubt if you can even turn to your spouse and agree on all of the Scriptures, I know I can't. We, we can't, right? It's literally impossible because we, we, Diane and I come from, from different backgrounds. We have different experiences with God and with the people who taught us about God. The problem, again, conceptual authority alone, it avoids conflict as long as nobody looks inside. Just keep the book shut. <laughs> Just believe what the man up in the front at the pulpit, right, tells you to do. Don't, don't worry about reading the words yourselves. I'll interpret for you, and I'll tell you what these texts are telling us to do. Again, as long as nobody looks closely, there will be no arguments. We'll all love each other. But with the Reformation, people started digging into the Word, and they're like, um, hold on now. <laughs> This isn't jiving with what the, the world, the Catholic Church was saying at that point, right? They, they got the Bible and they got, whoa, 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 we opened up, we all knew it was inspired by God, but you've been telling us this and I opened it up and that's not what it says. That's not what it says. That's not the plain meaning. That's not what I got out of it. And so we have the Reformation, the Protestant protesting the Reformation. And again, conceptual authority alone avoids conflict as nobody looks closely, like blind faith. Josh McDowell wrote a book called uh, Don't Leave Your Brains at the Door, talking about this idea. You need to approach Scripture with a little bit more than just your own contextual understanding, your own experiences. Uh, Pope Benedict described this, this kind of reading of Scripture as intellectual suicide. I love that phrase. And the reason is simple, why conceptual authority alone doesn't solve the problem. The doctrine of original errancy or, or conceptual authority alone, right, if we just hang on that argument, right, which would supposedly settle all harmful arguments and interpretations that rests on the original documents, or we, we call them the autographs, they don't exist, right? They were not used in the writings of any of our translations, and quite possibly they never existed, at least in the way that we mentally view them. We're going to talk about that next week. They don't exist, right? The elusive autographs, which would provide the ultimate proof text, right? And we wouldn't even have to have functional authority because what was originally written, there is no argument, no argument about interpretation. The words, on the, word, the words on the page mean this, and this is how you apply this to your life. Now, if that were the case, no problem. God inspired it, I believe it, and I don't even need to look. But we all know that's not the case. It's not the case at all. 
The original untainted by time human hands or human mind compositions that, compositions that provide the correct, <laughs> the correct interpretations inerrantly revealing the will of God concerning us in all things, they don't exist. They simply don't exist. Now, again, I'm not arguing against the Holy Spirit-inspired, God-breathed composition of the original texts. But for several reasons, I'm just arguing that we can't rest on that argument alone. It shuts down conversations. The Bible says it, I believe it, and you're wrong. Bam, into discussion. How helpful is that? Who's going to find salvation by way of that? For several reasons, I'm suggesting that we can't accurately and lovingly interpret the Bible on conceptual authority alone. Under the argument, well, God wrote it. It was inspired by God. I don't even need to think. Just do. Why? Why doesn't it work? Well, because mom and dad says so only worked in Oz. We're, we're not in Oz anymore, right? The curtain's been pulled back. There's three reasons. Let me state them very quickly. Number one, if we just rely on God wrote it, just shut your brain off and accept it. No statement about the validity of the Bible itself, right, the physical documents, guarantees the validity of anyone's interpretation on any text, right, any text, right? There is no reliable correlation between the words on a page and how each reader interprets those pages. Why? Well, number one, we've already looked at that because the documents themselves are incredibly complex. Thousands of years, multiple languages, continents, experiences, people, I mean, the whole nine yards. And the second reason is us. We've looked at that. We all interpret differently. Right? We, we, we come to Scripture, we approach Scripture from just radically different starting points. And therefore, we bring sometimes unnecessary stuff into the text. And as we read it, we sometimes unnecessarily and unintentionally leave stuff out of the text because we don't have any experience that connects it to the text. So we kind of just read over it. Well, by golly, it was there for a reason. <laughs> and maybe we need to spend a little bit more time. Right? For example, spare the rod, spoil the child. I always thought that mean if you don't spank your child, if you don't spank, your child will become a spoiled little brat. Would you raise your hand if that's the way you read that? Spare the rod, spoil the child. Would you? Would you? Just. Now, I talked to my cousin several years back, uh, probably 20 years ago. She said, and, I, and we were talking about that, and I said, well, yeah, yeah blah, blah, this means this. And she's like, Jerry, that's not what it means. It's not. It was her opinion. And it's just, just the plain meaning of the text, right? I read it one way, and she says, no, 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 no. She says, if you spare the rod, if you don't spank your children, you're literally, you're spoiling them with love like a prodigal grandparent, like a prodigal God. You're, you're showering them with blessings. That's what you're doing. You're not spoiling them rotten. You're spoiling them like a grandparent spoils kids. And that's good, by the way. But it just, it just drives up the fact that such, such a simple, simple, simple words on a page, two different people arrive at two radically different conclusions, interpretations. A second reason conceptual authority alone doesn't really help is it requires no commitments from those making such declarations to the witness of the Bible. Right? It's one thing to believe things about the Bible or display an incredible amount of knowledge about the Bible. It's another thing entirely, entirely to respond faithfully to what the Bible is promoting or teaching or suggesting or offering. Demons believe Scripture to be God's word. They 
They just reject it. They also have a lot of knowledge about God's word. They're just really, really bad about applying it. They're horrible about applying it. And then the third reason, we're going to look at this today, conceptual authority alone. It doesn't address the basic questions about authority itself, right? For whom are these texts authoritative, right? Is it for astronomers, right? If you're an astronomer, are you going to come to this book to find out about astronomy? Are you going to come to this book if you're a scientist or a geographer or a historian or a philosopher? No. If you're seeking God, you're going to come to this book. For those other reasons, you're going to come up woefully short. Your answers are going to be not satisfactory. And for what? For what primarily is this book authoritative? Is it for genetic research? Is it for global space exploration? Is it for information on pre-recorded history? Or is it for seeking God's will in our lives? For what is it authoritative and for whom is it authoritative? We have to address those issues. See, we just make these blanket statements and people go, whoa, whoa, back off. I don't believe a word of it's in there. It's not mine. You just now said it's mine. No, it's yours. Are we asking it to answer questions like how do we live life abundantly? Or are we asking it to ask, answer questions like what are the scientific details of the abundant life? Are we asking it to answer questions like who created the earth? Or are we asking it to answer questions like what was the science that created the earth? Are we asking it to answer how to go to heaven? Or are we asking what is the science of how heaven goes? What, what, are, we, what are we asking of scripture? What, are we, what, are we, what do we want to pull from it? We, we've got to be careful. It has a purpose. And it doesn't fit all purposes. So to be clear, right, um, the Bible becomes Holy Scripture not only because of its conceptual authority, right, which means that God inspired the original activity of the original composition of the text, but it also has functional authority, right, in the church's ongoing reading and engagement of the biblical text. Just at the ancient Hebrews, they, they chose their holy books by, because they heard God speak to them through those scriptures, the Christian church, the same thing. They chose their books, not because of a council. They chose the books they chose because the books continued to speak life into the early Christians. And the early Christians kept hold of those Old Testament texts that even it wasn't their faith anymore, it continued to speak life into them. So they kept the Old Testament because those words continued to speak life into them. And the same Holy Spirit that inspired the original writings in radically different cultural times than ours, right, has to be the same Spirit who continues to inspire and form and transform us today in, listen carefully, in our radically different time and culture, right? How, do, how does that, how can you bring that up to today? The Bible, Holy Scripture, if we ever come to the truth, it will be because the same spirit of truth enabled us to receive it. So, let's get to today. How do ancient words still speak? Right? How can a message spoken 2,000 years ago in a time and culture far, far away, a little Star Wars there for you, how can this still make sense today? How do those kind of words that are so old still speak life into the issues of today? And I believe that we're going to find an answer in probably the, the central text that explains to us just how God went about revealing himself, right? This is in John chapter 1. I'm not going to look at all 18 verses. I'm going to look at several of them. You can spend some time with this later on. Not right now. You need to listen. In John chapter 1, John describes just how, right, how ancient words still speak. 
how the eternal, absolute, timeless word of God enters into and makes sense in our temporal, subjective, and time-bound world, right? How does that happen, right? How does what exists and has always existed, how can that make sense for us, right? Because we're always becoming, we're always changing, we're always being altered by our, our environments, but his truth, no. So how do, those, how do those two come together? Listen to this. This is in verses one through three. This, this is amazing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now, you notice right away that John draws a a very, very clear distinction between God and creation, the creator and the created, right? There are two radically different things. And he's borrowing heavily from Greek philosophy, right? And, and, he's, and he's speaking to a Greek audience, so this is why he's borrowing heavily from, from Greek philosophy. Um, the idea is that all created things are constantly in the process of becoming. That, that's you and I, that's biography, uh, biology <laughs> out there, all plant life. Every, everything, is in the, everything, everything that's created is in the process of becoming. There, nothing is, exists as is, always was, and forever will be. That is God alone is, was, and will always be. The Greeks had this also, this idea that behind all forms and shadows, everything that you're seeing are imperfect pictures, shapes, shadows, forms, different terms they use, of the reality that we can't experience. We don't see in this world because it's hidden from us. This is the Greek kind of mind. This is what they were looking at. So John is basically telling the searching Greeks, right? Remember Paul when he came to the tomb of the unknown God? He's like, hey, Greeks, let me tell you about the unknown God. I know him. His name is Jesus, right? The writer to the Hebrews, or excuse me, John is saying the exact same thing, right? Hey, Greeks, you've been hearing about this mind of God, the logos, right? Behind all of everything that we see is this perfect reality, and they called it the mind of God, the logos. John's like, it's Jesus. <laughs> everything that you've been looking for, is right here. It's, it's Jesus, Right? You've been searching for thousands of years. You found them. You found it. You found the mind of God. It's Jesus. Here's how the early writer, or excuse me, the writer of the book of Hebrews said the exact same thing to the early Christians. This was read in our service just a little bit earlier. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, in the past, see if you see this connection right here. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And you you do. You read the prophets, and they're like all over the page. Some of them read. Some of them act. Some of them wear sackcloth. Some of them marry prophets. I mean, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. Uh, Many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. That was in John 1, 1, 2, 3, 2. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, right? Because we are creatures and not the creator, right? We find ourselves in a world of becoming. It's always changing, right? The opinion today is not the opinion of tomorrow. Truth kind of just is a sliding scale apparently, right? And we're, we're, we're just, everything is in flux in our world, in the created world, which means, as we learned last week, that our understanding of truth is fairly limited. And we've just kind of got to be humble about this, kind of hold the truth in gentle hands, right? But here's the miracle of the incarnation. Verse 14. 
the Word became flesh. Right? The very essence of God became like me and you, trapped in crazy circumstances. Like, look at Jesus. Like, he's from a working-class background, a Jewish male. He's a carpenter. The whole, the whole part of his world is in rebellion. Troops are everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. So the timeless, absolute truth of God has been dumped in this, like, mess. Now, if God's willing to do that, then we can also affirm that he continues to do that today. His truth can make sense in all of your crazy different experiences and backgrounds. Jesus, the incarnate word, is exposed to the underbelly of life on this created planet. Right? The miracle of the incarnation is that God chooses the world to be coming, the world that, in which everything is changing all the time as the place for telling us about what is. Absolute and timeless truth, what is, right in the midst of our all over place world. God somehow speaks absolute and timeless messages by way of our incredibly limited perspectives, even those perspectives that are crazy and wrong. Right, so we, we're all good with that. Good, good, good. Now, in order for this to happen to the fullest degree possible, there's at least three contexts that I want to look at this morning. We're just going to kind of roll through them. Two of them don't even have to do with the biblical context itself. You're like, what? Heretic. Right, just relax. Just, just hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, first, the first context, I'm going to talk about three contexts. First context is the context on the page, right? This is what you learned about in your English class. Right? What's the main idea, Junior? I don't know. Well, read the context. What's that sentence mean? I don't know. Read the, con read the sentences before. Read the sentences after. Read paragraphs, right? Here, here, I mean, the craziest thing happens, right? We, we, uh, we look at a passage, and, and maybe the author is trying to make point A, and he uses A, B, and C to make his point, and then he concludes, and somebody looks at point B, and they create a whole doctrine out of it, and like, whoa, 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 time out. Read in context, that's not a doctrine. That's an example about a doctrine. He's just given an example, right? Don't, you, you, you got to read in context, for example, in Hebrews 4, chapter 12, it says this about Scripture. And it would have been tempted, and I actually did look at this passage. Well, this would be a good one to include in a message about the Bible, right? It says this, for the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the hearts. But in context, right, if you start at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it's really not about the Bible, it's really, the, the writer to the Hebrews is spending the whole time talking about the sufficiency of Jesus. And it's in the Bible that we find Jesus. But the passage really wasn't about the Bible. It was about Jesus. But we look at this passage and we build this whole, whole theology and this whole doctrine around this passage. It's not even what it's about. Right? It, it's pointing us to Jesus, not to Scripture. It's the craziest thing. A couple tips to keep things, right, in context. In context, um, be wary of uh, scriptural sound bites, right? Understand the whole before memorizing a few verses. Um, so often the sound bite is actually, I know this is crazy, but it happens to me time after time after time. I look at a, a, a passage, a verse, and think, well, this is what it's saying. And then I look at the whole context, and lo and behold, it's the opposite. 
It's the opposite, but because I didn't look at the context, I just kind of grabbed that verse out, I memorized it, and I made it, and I put it on my mirror, right, and I have it on a shirt, and like, that's not what it means, right? Read the context. I mean, it happens, right? Be wary of sound bites. Read it all before consulting commentaries, right? But read it all and go ahead and consult commentaries. Read it all, but consult commentaries. Read it all first, though. Let God speak to you first. What is your initial impression? And number three, take cues from the author, right? The author of whatever book you're reading, whether it's Acts or a gospel or a letter or a narrative or you know, whatever it is, the author will usually give you some cues as to what you're about to dig into, right? Is it a, a personal narrative? Is it a national narrative? Is it a teaching story? Is it a poem? Is he trying to get you to feel something or to know something? Is that part of the letter to believers or is that part of the letter to unbelievers? Right? You're not going to know that unless you read the, read the whole letter. What is Paul trying to say? In that? What is James trying to say in this letter? If you just take that one verse out, I, I promise you, you're probably going to come up very, very short and you're going to have a faulty interpretation. And then finally, approach creatively, right? Read different translations. Read aloud. The Old Testament was meant to be read aloud. And what I found sometimes when I'm reading Scripture to, like, the teens, I'm reading it as the words are coming out of my mouth. I mean, as I read it to myself a thousand times, it made perfect sense, perfect sense, perfect sense. I read it out loud. It's like, that makes no sense whatsoever. As it came out of my mouth, I'm like, I need to work on this before I give it to the teens. Because coming out of my mouth, it just blah, 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 blah. But in my mind, it all fit together. Read things out loud. Anything to hear it differently. And then the second much overlooked context comes with two questions. First question, this is the context of looking back, right? The first context was on the page itself. Now we're going to look back. What, what kind of context is behind or before this Bible passage, right? This is the two words we use. Um, really, the biggest word is hermeneutics. How do we apply the Bible? And that hermeneutics kind of gets broken down into two tasks. Exegesis is what did the Scripture mean then, and hermeneutics how can we apply it to today? And that's kind of the work of a pastor. This has kind of been the, the dominant theory of interpretation for at least 100 years now. What did it mean then? And it can't mean today what it didn't mean then. And, you know, you got to bring it up faithfully without picking up anything extra or without losing anything vital, right? You got to bring it from the past and bring it up in today so carefully. Like, and we learned last week, like we're jars of clay, right? So we're taking this message and we'll mess it up. <laughs> we'll mess it up totally. God knows this. We all know this. We're jars of clay, but we've got this incredible message and he trusted us with it. In our crazy changing circumstances, he trusted the timeless, absolute truth of God to, to crazy us, characters, straight up characters. So in the biblical, or excuse me, in the historical, cultural, social context, right, the trick, again, is to bring it forward. And how do we move beyond what a passage originally meant to determine what a passage means today? You might not be aware of this. Maybe you are. But the second question, kind of in this context of looking back, not only is there a historical, cultural, social context, that's what pastors always do. Here's the Greek, and here was the background, and this is what the basket man, and blah, 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 blah. That's kind of what I'm doing at this point. But then there's a second step, a second question that kind of rocked, rocked me. What is the biblical context of the text? 
Take the binding of Isaac, for example. Genesis chapter 22. You're going to have to look at this on your own. Scholars have kind of concluded because of literary contextual clues that verses 1 through 14 was one of those oral traditions that one or many of the tribes were, were, were holding on to. It might have been written down. And at some point, depending on what you believe, and you know, it's fine whichever way, whether it was Moses that compiled all these or it was the scribes during the exile that compiled all these oral traditions into what we see in our Bibles today, you could, you're okay either way, either way. But in the, the binding of Isaac, in this story, in its original version, verses 1 through 14, um, in, in, in verses 13 and 14, the writer tells you the interpretation. And it's a very, very simple interpretation. It says this, verse 13. Abraham looked up, and there was a thicket. In the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, and he took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 14, so Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So Mount Moriah is sacred because it was there that the Israelites rejected child sacrifice. God would provide. You don't need to sacrifice your children. That was the meaning of the story. That was it. And then what they're looking at, and there's nothing, I don't want to undermine the authority of Scripture. For me personally, this is what makes it more real is that that oral story was then when the writers of the Bible put everything together, it was slotted in with a whole bunch of stories about Abraham and, and the covenant of Abraham and the, and the gift of Isaac. And then when readers then, not the readers who read just that original 1 through 14, that oral story about Isaac, but when they then read it in Scripture, it was slotted in with a whole bunch of events. And at that point, it takes on a whole kind of an additional meaning at that point. In verses 15 through 18, we're presented with an expanded, additional interpretation of the story of the binding of Isaac. We read this, verses 15 and then 16 and 17. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So as an oral tradition, it just, it just had, right, no child sacrifice, right? That's awesome. But then when it's in, put into the context of all these other stories, right, the, the, the risk is greatly heightened, right? What if Isaac does get sacrificed? What happens to the promise then? And if you, and it's okay, I, I kind of lean this way myself, if you believe that it was the scribes in the exile in Babylon that put all this together, this would have been, and this is what both Bible scholars agree, it's kind of a little bit of an editorializing. Let's add to the story and make it mean something today Let's bring it from its original context and make it speak life into the situation of that day. And can you imagine if you were a, a Jewish person in exile and you had lost, you're close to losing faith in the promise, and then somebody says, let me read you the binding of Isaac. And they add these lines here at the end, and you're, oh, he won't forsake us. He didn't forsake Isaac, and he won't forsake We're still the promise. Oh, good, 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 good. Right? It spoke something new to a new audience years later. A new layer of meaning. And again, if much of the Old Testament as we have it today was actually a collection of oral and written sources compiled during the exile, right, this meaning has tremendous power. 
tremendous power to its listeners. God won't forsake us. And it doesn't end there, right? In looking back, the first version is correct, absolute, and timeless, as was the newer expanded version. And again, in the New Testament, they pick it up again, and it gets reinvented again, right, to meet the needs of the people at that point. Can you say functional authority? In the Gospels, we read of my beloved son or the son whom I love, depending on your translation, when God speaks of Jesus. And then in Paul's letter to the Romans, we hear that God did not spare his only son. And we look backwards in Scripture, and we find these words in Genesis chapter 2, 22, verse 2, it says, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. See, now Isaac is prefiguring Jesus. That wasn't in the original story. It's just that we don't have to sacrifice children. And then the promise is still good for us. And now it's interpreted again through the Christ event. The meaning changed, and it's okay. And then to James in the book of Hebrews, if you look at both those letters, they bring up this, this, this incident. And there's another layer of meaning added now the message is, hey, when the Roman Empire is persecuting you, don't worry, God is still faithful. And then the Reformation comes, and John Calvin grabs this passage and says, this is the faith alone doctrine, faith alone. And so, so, again, one meaning within Scripture, it's got its own story within the Bible. Like, it, it changes as the Bible writers say, hey, this story is powerful, it's real, um, and, it, and it can still speak to us today, but it's going to have to say different words. Nothing changes. A few tips to help understand the bigger picture. First of all, historical and biblical stories. I, I, would, I would challenge you and I, I, would, I would ask you, know your world history. Know your Hebrew history, right? The patriarchs, the exodus, the united kingdom, the divided kingdom, the exile, and then the return. And even the events that aren't even in the Bible aren't mentioned too much. The destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. That affected the later writers. Early Christians, read about early Christians. There's a, there's a website, textweek.com, T-E-X-T, week. It's a lectionary site, but it does a really, really good job. It has links to all of its scripture, and it links back to original commentaries like Augustine back in the 500 AD, right, or Wesley in the 1700s, or Calvin in the late 16, early 1700s. I mean, you know, all these, all these incredible, what did they say? See, so so we, in the 21st century, we have developed, and you don't even realize it's like the frog in the pot, right? You don't even realize it, but we have bought into a, an interpretation. You go back two or 300 years, and you're like, what? That's the way they read it? And it's not that they were wrong. And at this point, you've just expanded. You've expanded your understanding, and that's a beautiful thing. Read current events, right? What has God seen? What do you need to see? Where is God at work, and where do we need to be at work? And then a final two-part focus, that context that focuses on us as a reader. And the first is naming your own context. Scripture has been used to justify some of the worst atrocities known to mankind, right? God told me to do this. We're often blind to our own prejudices and our own, our own ignorance. In addition to the Holy Spirit's power to show us our true self, I think we also need the Holy Spirit's power to be aware of where we stand in relation to the text itself. 
This applies to us as individuals and as a local gathered body of Christ. Like, where do we stand? Right? You read the, the story of the prodigal son in Luke. A great example of, of, of where do you stand? Early on in your life, many of you see yourselves as the younger son. Like, oh, good, God forgave me. Whew, love that, younger son. Right? And then we get a little bit more mature, and we become churchgoers, and, and we start, am I the young, younger son now, or am I the older son? Right? And then we become parents, and we're like, I want to be like the dad. Right? You kind of put yourself into different characters in the story, and you see radically different things. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is another one. Right? He's talking about rich and poor people in church. Don't be a respecter of persons, right? Just because somebody is richly dressed, don't set them out in front and the poorly dressed one, make him sit on the floor. We all kind of read that in church. like, we don't do that. But really, let's draw this out a little bit. Do we do that outside of church? Just asking. Just asking. Hosea, this is the big one. It's a story of a prophet who God said, look, I want you to go marry a prostitute because that's what Israel has done when they worship other idols, right? They're, they're like prostituting themselves, right? And I want you to have a, a visual for the people. And in the story, we really, we demonize the, the prostitute, but just think about it for a minute. What about the hundreds of thousands of women and children sold into the sex slave trade? How are they reading this? How are they hearing me preach that? Like, are they evil? They didn't decide. They got sold into the sex slave industry. We, we, there's other context, right? There, there's other things that we need to hear. Place yourself in the shoes of each of the characters, Right? And then the second issue regarding context around you, and that's inhabiting the context of other people. As I've shared before, I'm always amazed at how often the plain meaning of the text just isn't as plain as I thought, right? And I think you're all going to agree with this, and you just think politics, right? Think about everything that happened this year, and you're going to conclude, same as I have, the plain meaning is only plain to people who are like me, right? If they're the same political party, pretty much these days, Right? The only, if you're a part, member of the opposite party, I can almost guarantee you're interpreting everything differently from me. It's just, it's just, just what we do. We, we, we do this. Maybe the greatest challenge as readers of Scripture would be to allow God's word to be a voice for people not like us. Voices that are so easily silenced or, or ignored. And we all know this too. We're healthiest when we listen to the entire body. Right? We get sick in isolation. Right? We get wrapped up in our own thoughts. I mean, I, I, do, I do this all the time. I get, I'm in my office. I get all wrapped up in my, my thinking, and, and then I'll share it maybe with Diane. She's like, wow, really? It's like, what do you mean? And she points something out. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even see that. Right? And I had this Bible study, this men's group that I was a part of, and I would, I, it was the greatest time because I would share some thoughts about my message. I'd had it all, I had it all figured out. I had the right interpretation. And I would talk to these men, and they would throw out their interpretations, and I was like, why do I have to change my whole message? Because I did not read it as they read it, and my eyes were open. It's like, wow, how did you hear it like that? But, I, but I, I could see as they explained it, like it made perfect sense. Scripture spoke life into their life, but it didn't speak the same life into my life. I remember one time I was spouting church growth scriptures to a pastor who was a struggling church. What a jerk. Think. A great passage of experiment with this kind of reading is the, the, the parable of the talents. Just a couple questions that, that you can ask 
with the parable of the talents. With whom do you identify of the three people that were given different amounts, right? Can the plain meaning change? What injustices are in this passage, and do we have to accept Mark's view? See, we tend to side with the landowner and those who get to work after the wicked tenants have been sent packing, right? We're like, yes, now the good people get to go in there and, and work. But the reality is for many of our churches worldwide, it forces them to question whether what takes place in that parable was even just. Kind of got to step back just a little bit and like, wow, we're, we're reading it very, very much from our perspective here in North America, but what about other parts of the world? How are they receiving this information? And we may still ultimately agree with Mark, but our understanding will now be flavored with compassion, and it definitely won't be simplistic or naive. This is what we usually approach people with, kind of simplistic, right? Remember the suitcase? has all of our ideas and our doctrine, but we don't like to open it because it's too complex and we can't answer all the questions, so just leave it locked. A few tips. Inhabiting the context of others. Read in community, right? Small group Bible studies, that's the power. You hear other people's perspective. Compare to other faith traditions. And compare your reading to non-believers, right? If you know some people who don't believe, ask them, well, what do you make of this? Is this gibberish or is it... Does it, does it make sense to you? How, do you? how do you read this? Right? Read it in other people's shoes. Right? Be another person as you read. And then finally, narrate your own context. This I find fascinating. Do the key events in your life read the same as the key events in somebody else's life? Or do they have key events in their life through which they read Scripture that don't make any sense to you? You did not experience anything like that. A few words of caution and then an appeal. Time and place can alter the truth. All right? A story alone means nothing. I can sit here and tell you about a horrific car accident, and you'll care, you'll care, you'll care, you'll care, until I say, oh, your mother was in the car. Bam! The whole story takes on a whole new heightened meaning because now it has context. It's not just somebody, it's somebody. Right? Context matters. Context is everything. And then a final challenge, an, an appeal. This is kind of my prayer in closing. Open our interpretive hands and graciously allow Scripture to be for today what the Holy Spirit graciously allowed it to be yesterday. And I love that word graciously. It does not mean politely. That's not what I'm driving at. It means that you arrived at truth by God. And by the Spirit of God, you didn't arrive at it by your own intellect. Don't confuse yourself, because your own intellect is greatly flawed. We've looked at this. You arrived at it because of the Spirit of truth. You arrived at truth because of the Spirit of truth. So graciously allow that same Spirit of truth to speak a different understanding that you might not agree with, but that's okay. We've got to allow Scripture to embed itself, right, to be understood in its own context in our context and in the context of others. I want to read to you. This is uh, Seth Gooden. He writes this. This is in conclusion. <laughs> you love that? No, really, in, in conclusion. If you want to have an argument to raise tempers or distract, the easiest thing to do is to start bringing up things that are easy to argue about, not the things that are important. 
Because the important things require nuance and patience and understanding. They require an understanding of goals and the way the world works and our mutual respect. If someone keeps coming back to an irrelevant, urgent, or provocative point instead, they're signaling that they'd rather not talk about the important thing, which is precisely what we need to talk about. Jesus is the important thing. All this other stuff, I got my opinions, you got your opinions. You can still love me, I hope, and I can still love you, I'm pretty sure. Bow your heads. Father, thank you. Thank you for so many great minds who have just dug into your scripture and they're seeing things that I could not have seen. I simply could not have seen them. But as I read and I study and I, and I see great men of God, men that you have inspired years after the fact to understand it in ways that it makes sense finally to me in the way it made sense to people years ago. So, Father, by the power of your spirit that we let your scripture speak um, and somehow, Father, don't let our opinions be poisonous. May our opinions give life. Thank you, Father. In your son's name I pray.